SequelCast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. I don't eat red meat at all. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. That's right. Oh, a little fish now and then. But what I really like is some nice shh, broccoli. <laughs> After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies and a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, uh, Matt. We are kicking off a series of four movies we're going to look at, two of which had were direct-to-video sequels. Uh, two of the first two were theatrical. And uh, this is a, a cartoon. We like animation on here. And uh, this we're doing an American Tale, directed by Don Bluth, with a screenplay by Judy Friedberg and Tony Geis, with me as Thrasher. I'm a vegetarian. Oh, I eat a little fish every now and then. <laughs> and uh, Alex. Hey, Don Bluth, where you at? I can tell that you got a problem with cats. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, this film, I didn't realize it was uh, as old as it is. It came out in 86. And yet I have memories of seeing it in a theater. And I'm wondering if it had a re-release around the same time as um, Land Before Time. I remember I seeing this a lot when I was a kid, and this came out the year I was born, so it's officially 35. Okay. Yeah, I I unfortunately did not see this in the theater, although I would love to see it in the theater. Uh, th- but this for four years, if we didn't know what to rent at the video rental store for the weekend, we would just rent this. Well, yeah. Um, it's definitely one of those... You know, movies that was a, a big hit. Don Bluth, uh, for those that might not know, you know, uh, was an animator at Disney and uh, along with some other animators there just got kind of fed up at the lack of appropriate credits and kind of the, the boring movies they were doing at the time. So he went to form his own studio and, and they did a, a TV movie, uh, Banjo, the Woodpile Cat, and eventually did um, Secret of Nim in 82, four years before. Uh, and then this was their next one, American Tale, and notable for, among other things, uh, Steven Spielberg was an executive producer on this and did this through uh, Amblin Animation. It, it, they they had a very fruitful but very brief creative partnership uh, in the '80s, and it's 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 a shame that that partnership dissolved. I would love to have seen what they could have done if if the partnership had sort of continued into the DreamWorks era. Yeah, uh, Thrasher, did you ever get to see Don Bluth talk? live i got to see him talk uh, do it once yes yes i did it was an amazing lecture i saw him at a convention and he was uh i, I don't think he was promoting anything in particular but he at the time he was trying to get a, a cartoon of dragon slayer off the ground oh yeah. Uh, and at the time he wanted david schwimmer as the voice uh, he did he did these uh video games that had really good animation the games weren't that good but there were dragon slayer and space ace and stuff like that dragon slayer had a cartoon on usa network but um did you ever play dragon slayer alex 
No, I'm familiar with the um, the Disney movie, the live action one, but I've never uh, played the games. The game, if you can find it, is great. If you ever go to like a retro arcade show, there's usually going to be at least yeah. one Dragon's Lair booth, and it's worth experiencing. It's nice. played off a, a laser disc, and you see these fully animated sequences. Oh, and, one of those, cool. And you have to, uh, you know, move the joystick in just the right time, or else you'll die. I mean, it's basically like they didn't they weren't called this at the time, but it's essentially a game made up of nothing but quick time events. Right, right. You're just watching the animation and then there's a prompt and you better react appropriately to that prompt or else you get to see Dirk the Daring killed in a horrible fashion. <laughs> That's part of the fun of the show is just seeing this this knight just bite it in 101 uh, <laughs> entertaining ways. Indeed, but uh to American Tale, I mean, this is not only a cartoon of, I guess you could call it historical fiction in a way, but it's also about the, the immigrant experience, but specifically Fievel and his family, if you can't guess from the name, are, are uh, Jewish. And that's pretty unusual for the time. I think still is unusual that you have a, a Jewish protagonist in an animated film. Well, it's one, it's one, it's that, yes, it is It is rare that the the that the protagonist is is openly Jewish, but two, it's it's rare that they have any faith whatsoever. Uh, most animated sure, uh, sure. movies, right, the characters yeah. exist in kind of a a bland, not like a bland, virtuous but not faith based world. But in, but in here, it's just like right off the bat. I mean, after the opening credits, the movie begins with the family's Hanukkah celebration in a shtetl. And they say Hanukkah too. And they say they say yes, yes, right. few presents and he goes, Oh, happy Hanukkah. And like, oh, we're doing that. Cool. Yeah, um, they don't call it Mausica. They don't you right. know, they don't do what you see in so many of these sort of cartoons where everything has like a mouse pun to it. Yeah. And the family is kind of you know, like the dad's fat and overweight. Like they don't all look like pretty supermodel mice. Uh, well that's that's the that's one of the advantages of, of Don Bluth uh, in his films is you do get a wide variety of, of characters like they all have a consistent design. They all look like they stepped out of the same off the same pen, but there's always wildly divergent body types and, and things like that. And I get and this is this is an analog movie. There is nothing digital in this movie, and I love it for that. Yes. But there are there are so many moments where oh, why is this scene here? Oh, because an animator wanted to animate the fuck out of something. <laughs> right. And I think, like, this is, having rewatched uh, recently uh, The Secret of Nim and The Land Before Time the past couple of years, and then watching this, I think this is some of his best animation. I mean, everything is so textured, and there's so much, like, you know, just life coming off of each frame. And also, I think it's, a like you said, a, they all step off the same, you know, pen, because there's that right level of humanizing the the creatures just a little bit but also letting them stop and just be like hey mice are cute to begin with so we don't have to go overboard and give them rosy cheeks and big eyes and stuff mm. like that like the you know they're fucking adorable as it is and you can give them these little human characteristics without overdoing it well and stuff looks scuffed up the clothes look torn and yeah. stuff and and also it has uh i mean a lot of mel brooks connections in this i mean so you mentioned secret of nim dom de louise was in that as the as the pro <laughs> And uh, in this one, he's Tiger the Cat. The same. It's a similar sort of um, you know, comedic relief uh, kind of side character. But and we also have, have yeah, Madeline Kahn, right, is a Gussie Mouseheimer who who does this thing with uh, kind of a speech impediment thing that she did in, 
Oh, Blazing Saddle is sort of a similar kind of gag with that. Yeah. And uh, but other than that, it was still uh, in a time where it wasn't celebrities doing all the voices. I mean, you did have Christopher Plummer and and stuff. So, but a lot of times it's just like voice. It's uh, voice actors people that did a lot of television cartoons and stuff. And people that, you know, that they're more committed to voice acting is, is their main bread and butter. So they can do all sorts of things. And um, you don't see that too much anymore. I think after Aladdin with Robin Williams in particular, most uh, uh, animated features kind of went crazy with, oh, we're going to have John Travolta do this voice and this and that. Mm-hmm. And and putting uh, voice actors, you know, not letting them get uh, or even try out for like main roles. Instead, they have to play like fish number three. Right. Yeah, the clutch thing with voice actors is that they can do more than one role too. That was the other thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a the the, the use of celebrity voice actors uh, to do, or to celebrities to do like voices in animated features. It's been a it's been a mixed blessing, you know, because like, yes, definitely. Like like Robin Robin Williams, you know, undeniably brilliant as sure. the genie. But every every now and then, every every now and then, like, huh, like this is just a famous voice. This this brings nothing to the character, and and that's something that I that's something that I actually love about about this is that most of the like, with the exception really of like Tony Toponi, Honest John, and uh, Gussie Mausenheimer, no one's really doing a big old character voice. Like the voice acting sounds very natural. Everyone just kind of right. sounds like a bit player who's trying to put their stamp on a role. And and I find that and, and overall that works really well. Although, can I can I talk about one of the uh, like a, a a segment I'm very ambivalent about? Mm. Sure. So we need to talk about the big centerpiece of this movie is the song Somewhere Out There, which yes. which okay. is a, a delightful song. But, you know, it's after Fievel has been separated from his family. Both he and his sister are on like opposite sides of New York are singing this song about wanting to be reunited. And it's a and it's a very good song, but it's it's the actors for the two characters who are just like kids on the one hand. I think it's good that they're just singing like kids because it makes the song so much more realistic and it's better as understated. It's not like a big production number. Yeah. But at the same time, neither one of them can really sing. So parts (laughs) of it are painful to listen to. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I I quite prefer the version that's over the end credits that became a a radio hit really with, um, with Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. Linda Ronstadt and and, uh, James Ingram. And, it, uh, you know, the, the composer that, that did the score here is James Horner, who later became really famous doing the music for Titanic and, and co-wrote the, the hit on that song as well. And, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It, it kind of reminds me of the older Disney stuff where you'd have either kids or people that can't sing do some of these numbers. And it just is, uh, that really took me out of the movie when I saw it because it was familiar with the song on the radio all the time. And then hearing this version, it's like, well, that's weird. And I mean, it's a deliberate choice. I mean, it just almost feels like you're watching a community theater performance at that point. Well, I think, I think, I think the one thing it needs, like some, the voices should be just a little bit sweeter because you can you can find kids who can sing. Yes. And I mean, just like in stage musicals for cartoons, they often have a different person do the singing, especially when it's celebrities, but not not always. I mean... Sorry, what was that you were going to say, Alex? I think the, I, I I mean, it's hard not to notice. It's like a big thump in the head when it happens, because like you said, they can't sing. Um, 
and uh, you know, obviously, it's definitely uh, a um, uh, it's definitely a creative choice. Uh, but one thing I kind of thought of, I guess, is that you know, this is taking place at a time when you know it was not uncommon to you know to have your father sing or to have your mother sing while doing the dishes or cleaning or vacuuming so i just i think it might evoke that kind of old timey uh like old uh you know coming to america feeling of like you know singing being a part of everyday life so maybe that's kind of channeling that you know it kind of uh surpasses whether or not you're good at it a lot of people are not good at it but they do it anyway um and sometimes they even get famous but um i i think it kind of speaks to that and it's a little endearing if sometimes a little yeah cringy well i would say my favorite musical number is when uh Fievel's family so and this is this is like another uh, like a thing that that just shows you how heavy this movie is, is because the, the whole inciting incident of this film is at, in the middle of the Mouskowitz family's Hanukkah celebration. Uh, Cossacks attack the shtetl, which was regrettably a very common occurrence at that period. And they're these Cossack cats. And that's when they decide, well, screw it. We're leaving Russia. We're going to go to America. Um, and that's. And so anyway, they're on the boat to America and they have this great number called There Are No Cats in America, where you f you have all these different immigrant mice from all these different parts of Europe. Uh, and they all sing about a tragedy that befell them because of a cat. And then about how their whole aspirations, because in America, the streets are paved with cheese. There's breadcrumbs <laughs> on every floor and there are no cats. Hooray. <laughs> that is like a show-stopping musical number, but it's not overproduced the way a typical Disney number is because there's all these really odd camera angles and these, and like every mouse is doing a different dance move. It's not like, they're not like choreographed with each other. It makes the, it makes it seem so much more spontaneous than your typical animated movie uh, dance number. Oh, what I love about it, like you said, it's not this giant showstopper, but like if you think of it in the context of like what's happening, it is for this like little gang of mice. It, it's not like, you know, all these other mice come out from the ship and there's this entire, you know, Busby Berkeley fucking thing. It's this little event amongst this little microcosm of people. And throughout the film, we're shown that the little mice contingent is a little microcosm of the American experience. We'll see, you know, Ellis Island checking in and then, you know, five feet below the mice are checking in or, you know, well, people. Well, that's another fascinating thing. There's a whole sort of as above, so below angle because yes. every now and then, because th these aren't cartoon like mice living in a cartoon mice world. These are cartoon mice living in a human world. Mm -hmm. And we are constantly reminded of that because there, there are multiple scenes where we do get quick glimpses of what the humans are doing while this mouse drama is playing out and they always reflect each other. But the humans are always rendered in such beautiful, realistic detail it really it really helps the movie and it leads to some amazing visuals it grounds it in just the right way i think it, it just um and they don't try to give the humans these like cartoonish looks like you said they're this very matter-of-factly rendered and I, I also love that little moment where the guy checks in and he's like what's your name he's like you know aldo schmidtwitz or whatever and he's like ah your name is al smith and again a very common occurrence that goes on when a lot of immigrants came to america Oh, but it, and that's actually another thing that I, I find fascinating about the boat scene is that all the mice involved in the No Cats in America number, if you if you break it down, they're all they're all um, Jewish mice from Russia or they're Catholic mice from Ireland or uh, Italy or Poland. And and it's it's not it's never spoken aloud in the film, but those are four distinct immigrant groups that did come to America in great waves. 
but who were then also confronted by prejudices in America. Oh, big time, yeah. And I also, I love, like, the the Land Without uh, Cats thing, because there were a lot of misconceptions about uh, from other people coming to America. You know, the streets are paved with gold, the streets are paved with cheese. That, you know, it would just kind of be this, like, you know, uh, like, you know, modernist utopia or something like that, when in fact, you know, they, a lot of people endured a lot of shit coming here. However, it's slightly less shit from wherever they came from, so it's still kind of better. Um, well, it's a chance for a fresh start, and that that is something that that is something that I think the the movie really expresses well. Well, and that's the thing too is that I was really knocked out by the momentum of this film. I mean, it really hits the ground going from like the Cossack invasion to getting on the boat to the whole storm thing. And can we talk about that amazing freaking animation during the storm? Oh yeah, the waves. Thing? Yeah, the Poseidon monster thing, which is well, no, actually, so if you funny. notice, yeah, there's this, there's a multiple shots where like this wave crests out towards the the steamship, but as it does, it takes on these monstrous performances. I had to check again when the wave takes on that that those monstrous shapes, they have the same silhouette as the Cossack cats. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Very nice. Yeah, it was a, it's a really wild sequence, and I guess Spielberg told Don Bluth to dial it down a little bit, that it was just, like, a little too scary. So this is, like, the, the, the more sanitized version that we're seeing, and it's still pretty goddamn creepy. I think so, yeah. You get the idea, you get the, um, of what's going on. I like that it's a, a bit of a journey. It's not just hard cut to, oh, we're in America. Yeah, and, exactly. And that, you see, it as the main story gets started with them, you know, landing in New York you get Fievel separated from his family. Uh, but you do get to see the family, even though they're in America, they're struggling and the, you know, they're kind of at one point they're teasing the father. Like you said, there's no cats in America. He's like, eh. <laughs> has this funny expression on his face, but mainly from there on out, it, the story becomes more, uh, more Fievel centric. And, you kind of have episodic stuff going from character to character. And I am kind of surprised there is fewer songs in this than I remembered. There's only four musical numbers, but um, keep in mind, this was in 86 and little mermaid, I think was in what 88 or 89, where you started yeah. to have tons of musical sequences in these shows. Uh, but before then, although you did have musical sequences and animated features, there weren't like a wall to wall. Like it, it is in, it was like in the nineties. I love this because I feel like in so many ways this like out Disney's Disney at the time and it doesn't do yeah. it through elaborate uh, like show stopping musical numbers and stuff like that. And I love that the musical numbers are kind of contained and not overblown because sometimes when you're hit like song after song after song for me, I don't know, maybe this is just a weird Alex thing, but like, it kind of it kind of wears me out. You know what I mean? Like sometimes if I rewatch something like Aladdin, I'm kind of like, OK, this is the go to the bathroom song, you know, Um well well, this is an, an, an example of like competition kind of helping the art form because this came out four months after The Great Mouse Detective, which is an infamous Disney bomb that Disney would rather you forget ever existed that was loaded with technical achievements that has a whole there's a whole computer assisted sequence in that movie. Vincent Price That's is right. in it. Um, and this movie came out. This other mouse movie came out from from Spielberg and, and Amblin. And not only did it make more money than The Great Mouse Detective, it was, at the time, the highest-grossing animated film ever made. And it didn't cost a whole lot, either. It was at a pretty 
small budget. Um, it didn't take as long to make either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It I, a pretty I fast love, production. I love the I love the underdog element of this film. You just had me check out the poster for Great Mouse Detective, and it says "All new, all fun" as the tagline. Like, what does that That's even mean? Tagline. That that is like. Like, I guess, could, yeah. like couldn't, shouldn't it just simply be like elementary? Yeah, or just, <laughs> right. But I mean, you look at the American Tale poster. Meet Fievel in a search to find his family. He discovered America, and you get these a realistic rendering of. Uh, him getting off the boat surrounded by human shoes and you can see the suitcases and the Statue of Liberty in the background. It's a nice, uh, nice piece of artwork that sums oh, up the story. Budget oh, nine. Hey, you, you know, it wouldn't be a Don Bluth animated film if it didn't get uncomfortably horny at some point. <laughs> Why don't you talk about those thirsty mice? Yeah, okay, so um, Fievel, like, very very early on, like, Fievel runs into this guy named Warren T. Rat, who who I would say is the, is the movie's antagonist, except he kind of disappears <laughs> for huge swaths of the movie, um, who he is, in fact, a cat in disguise who exploits exploits uh, mouse immigrants, and he, he you know, tricks Fievel into following him into this sweatshop where, uh, presumably, like, we never see what Fievel does there, but Fievel leads an escape, and one of the other mouses, this Italian-American mouse named Tony Taponi, says, hey, he's tough guy, he's from Brooklyn, I'll, I'll help you find your family, ho! Um, he's the Joe Pesci of the film, uh, and while they're, while they're going around, they find this little marketplace, and there's an Irish mouse named Bridget who is, like, organizing these rallies to like take a stand against cats uh and and it's and it's she's just a delightful little character and of course she and tony uh fall in love and like there's like and and first you just get the usual what my mother taken from disney would call sort of cartoon twitter patient where it's mm -hmm. just a lot of longing glances and like open mouth smiling but then you know they just keep getting closer and closer <laughs> And there's this scene where Tony's just looking at her and his eyeballs are like pulsing. Yeah. And, and like all I can imagine, oh, I guess his genitals are doing the same thing. <laughs> I do but you wonder... needless to say they hook up and Yeah, I mean I do wonder if it's something where maybe it wasn't scripted and just the animators throw it in to see what they could get away with or I, I think there's honestly, I think there's a lot of things that where the animators are just trying to see what they can get away with because there's so many just extra details. Oh, and speaking of getting away with something, there's something in this movie that I absolutely love and I wish it would come back, but regrettably, I think it, the era is completely over. Cartoon characters smoking and drinking constantly. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I thought it was good. I mean, it was perfect, too, because, like, again, it really captures the kind of, like, essence of the time. Like, you have a very, like, uh, Tammany-based uh, character guy with, like, the, the drunken shyster. I forget his name. It's, like... Oh, Honest John, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Honest John. I was going to say Johnny Superfair, but that's not right. <laughs> um, and I thought that was great. And, like, if you notice, whenever he spills his little uh, cup or goblet, you'll notice it burns holes in the ground. It's so loud. <laughs> the proof is so strong. It actually burns holes in the ground. And I love that he like they never they never say that it's alcoholic. They just trust you to infer it. And the only time he even mentions it is when he 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 offers a drink to Gussie Mausenheim and he says, "Oh, tell me, would you care for a wee drop of the creature?" <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! I love it. 
But like, um, but yeah, we get a lot of characters smoking, particularly Warren T, who like, and, and I love that his smoking just helps him express how evil he is because he's always just blowing smoke in people's faces and like gesturing with his cigar stub and, and creating these beautiful arcs of smoke in the air. And his little like cockroach assistant who's uh, crunching the numbers for him. Oh yeah, please put out that filthy thing. And I love how like his little his brain functions are like represented by like little electric like you know like little electrons getting thrown out from his antenna, which I thought was a really nice touch. Oh yeah, and he makes those little like clicking noises whenever he, yeah. he does complex math. It's 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 again it's one of those things they don't need to do that, but some animator was like, oh no no no, I'm gonna animate him doing math with as much gusto as possible. So lightning, Jacob's yeah. ladder. Yeah, I know it's so wild. And the thing too is that like. It feels like it's going to be this big inter- introduction. It's going to be this like huge part of the movie, and again, this like you know this like Herculean momentum. Because I think like oh, we're going to do this like Oliver Twist thing where he's going to be you know this you know rowdy little gang of thieves and pickpockets or whatever. And oh no, we get thrown right out of that into another thing. You know, as he's meeting the like unionist uh, anti cat uh, mouse chick. And again, I, I love that we don't stay anywhere for a long particular amount of time. Well, that has to do with the movie's momentum, because like this, this movie, it's only an hour and 20 minutes, but it feels like it's two hours long, but in a good way, because there's so much forward momentum and so much incident. Yeah, there's a lot going in there. I mean, towards the end, you have kind of a showpiece. Um, I guess you could say it's an action scene where the the mice build this giant mouse of minx and Minsk, uh, Minsk, sorry. And as it goes through it, it almost looks like a Godzilla sort of creature. But it also looks delightfully clumsy in the way it's kind of put together. You can tell it's made up of all these different bits and bobs, and that that handmade quality of that um, the creature they create, the robot basically, is uh, pretty neat as a kind of kaiju thing towards the end. It, it is it is cool. Their plan to sort of scare the scare the scare the gang on his or not on the scare warranty rat and his gang of cats like off the pier onto a boat going to Hong Kong, and it's and there there is some. There's some rotoscoped aspects of the giant mouse of Minsk they make, which is uh, which only kind of makes it look more terrifying and alien. And that's something that they do every now and then is where the the human things are a bit are a bit more rotoscoped. And of course, this, these are mice building a monster out of leftover parts in a closed down human museum of oddities. The the Professor Digitalis uh, Museum of the Bizarre and Strange, which. Which also, like, the sequence where they're building it is just amazing, where we see them, like, disassembling dinosaur skeletons and, like, mm-hmm. th- like going through jars of pickled, deformed critters and, like, boiling weird chemicals to make lifting gas. It's, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a, a scene that is so gloriously over-animated. It's, uh, there's so much detail. And also, again, instead of, like, a, a stupid, like, hey, we're building stuff song, we get, again, this, like, almost, like, steampunk habitat of like you know like mad max level like kluzhig you know what i mean i I love that kind of shit well the other thing is they don't tell you that they're building a giant mouse like when 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 gussie mausenheimer has her big rally with all the mice in new york to figure out what to do about the cats like five like whispers to her i got an idea but you don't know what it is although the pipe's been laid because in in the hanukkah scene uh, Papa Mouskowitz tells the story of the giant mouse of Minsk with does this neat shadow puppet thing. So the pipe's laid in. It doesn't come out of nowhere. You don't see that it's the giant mouse of Minsk until the very end where they release 
the the thing after trying to contain the thing and something that and and, and this comes down to sort of the one flaw is there's a scene where Gussie Mausenheimer is explaining their battle strategy where they're like pushing little toy cat wind up cats along a board I feel like that kind of gives it away because on the board is this wind up block with a big mouse head on top. <laughs> I feel yeah. like that kind of gives it away. I wish it was a little bit more of a surprise. And it also says the mouse of Minsk across the side. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that also yeah. does it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a couple of, and there's a, a couple of moments like, like that. Cause I think, cause like this movie is very fast paced and it occurred to me like there's that. I think, I think what it is, is, the way the movie is cut, it's as if they simply cut out all the connective tissue. And that's right. why it's part of why it's so fast paced, but also why some of the scenes just sort of happen. Because like once Fievel gets to America, you could cut the scenes in any order and the film would still work. Yeah, I think if you kept like the um, the uh, the Henri, the, the pigeon in that place and then rearranged everything else. Yeah. The movie would more or less be the same. Um, but again, I, I love that we're constantly getting like the protagonists, we're getting thrown from one piece to another, whether it's a mop bucket throwing you around or the rain or whatever. It's just that like, Hey, being, being a little mouse is tough, man. It, you know, it's like, everything is going to kill you basically. And I think that's like a very Don Bluthy thing is that like when you're, a little creature when you're a little critter contending against the human world uh you know shit's gonna be rough homie and um yeah the, you definitely get this constant threat and it's um it definitely ups the stakes and it kind of reminds you that you know this isn't just some fantastical you know uh slice of family entertainment this is a you know a very well thought out and um, expertly constructed feature it's time to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. The stunning HyperX Quadcast S features dynamic, customizable RGB lighting, a convenient tap to mute sensor, and four selectable polar patterns. So it can broadcast crystal clear audio, whether you're gaming, streaming, podcasting, or impressing your remote colleagues and classmates. So what are you waiting for? Join the Quad Squad and tap in today with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. Yeah, I mean the brevity the brevity more than makes up for whatever sort of storytelling hiccups the movie has because there's no connective tissue. Um so you can't have a Dom Bluth movie without Dom DeLuise. And Dom DeLuise he is introduced so late in the film. Yeah, that's one thing that surprised me. I had recalled he was in the movie a lot more and, and I did remember the kind of duo song they do that's a bit silly, kind of giving him some business. I would and, argue that's the worst written song in the movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun yeah. number, but like they barely have any time to be friends. Like, I feel like, like this yes. should have happened in the middle of the movie, not right before the climax. Right. But yeah, Fievel, while trying, because a running gag is that, is that Fievel, uh, Papa Mouskowitz likes to play the fiddle. So whenever Fievel hears fiddle music, he follows it, hoping to find his father. And he ends up finding Warranty Rat playing the fiddle with his gang of cats and he takes off his makeup and reveals that he's a feline. He captures Fievel, Fievel's put in a cage and Tiger is the cat that, who's a, an amazingly well animated cat. We've got a big fuzzy cat just like Tiger and they both move the exact same way, <laughs> including when they dance in musical numbers. Um, and 
and the and the thing that's nice about yeah he's a cat but he's also just kind of a big softy i mean he's clearly only in the cat gang because they need a dupe and so he and five will connect and like i just love them talking hey hey five what's your favorite book it's like oh the mm. brothers care about soft oh i can't believe that's mine too so apparently he's <laughs> literate so he's got that going for him <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is a fun kind of repartee between the two, but it's the character's not as central as, say, his character in Secret of Nim, where he's better integrated in the story, but it's a similar kind of character with the, the jokes and how he talks and a lot of kind of clumsy moving around. But there's, but there's also, like, they keep messing with the scale, because I, I will give them credit... Uh, there's a recurring bit in the duo musical number where they'll look at their reflection in like a piece of like, like a polished tray or something like right. that. And whenever they look in their reflection in their reflection, they're the same size, which symbolizes them viewing each other as equals, which again is a very, a very um, American thing in any other country. This cat would be eating that mouse, but because <laughs> they are in America and they've had a fresh start, they see each other as equals. And I think that that in itself is very symbolic and important. But that also comes there. There's a lot of I'll just call them sort of like animation flubs in this movie. Like if you really pay and I didn't and and I I didn't notice this when I watched this as a kid, but I really noticed it now all throughout the movie. There are these little little animation things where I was like, oh, they probably shouldn't have done that. Like, for instance, on the boat, when everyone's getting seasick, there are three fivals just floating around. Yeah. Oh, like there, there are many incidences of characters getting reused when they shouldn't be reused. Fievel is constantly losing his hat, but then they forget to animate him retrieving his hat. So just suddenly he's got his hat back on. I mean, to be fair, that happens in live action movies a lot too. With the True, but in animation, you have more direct control. And oh, you don't have yeah, to wait sure. For and after the fact, you can fix a lot more stuff like that. That's true. Um, but well, but like even then, the scale of Tiger always changes a bit whenever he interacts yeah. with somebody. Also, uh, like Dom DeLuise is like, it's funny, his reading of Tiger, it's almost like if John Candy did Tigger. Hmm. Uh, like, then. it's kind of got this, like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. like very funny cadence, but um, like you said, it, it, the song's a little out of place, but it works in its own weird kind of idiosyncratic way. But the funny thing with the hat losing, I noticed that too. And it's funny because it's like losing the hat, you feel like is like, makes it seem more legit. Like, oh, if he's getting tossed around, he's going to lose his hat. But then when it magically reappears, it's like, wait, then why did you go for losing his hat? You know well, what in I mean? Fact, I mean, that's how he gets separated from his family. He throws his hat, like, Fievel, don't go up on deck. And then he throws his hat through the door. Oh, no, right. I have to retrieve my hat. But yeah, then throughout the rest of the movie, it's just magically always on his head. Like, it's Thor's hammer, and he summoned it to him. Right. But the hat is kind of nice because, like, there's a whole thing about how the, you know, the hat is symbolic of his family's cultural traditions. Because when he's given the hat for Hanukkah, his father is like takes it off his head and puts it on five. I was like, God, oh, because it was I. It was my hat. It was my grandfather's hat. It was my great grandfather's hat. Now it's your hat. And like the hat flops down over his eyes. Yeah. Which it does a few times, but at the end, when he's re finally reunited with his family and he puts it on, he kind of like fluffs his ears a little bit. And the hat fits, and it's you know exactly. symbolic of his development as a character. So it's right. th that it's very charming, but yeah, they are so careless with the hat up until that point. It's funny though; it's it's a good framing device because it does remind you that you know he's a little he's a little critter, and that he's young, and also like as a movie kid, especially in a, like a film like that's a family entertainment movie. 
Um, the, there's a lot of child characters that are so goddamn annoying sometimes. But, like, Fievel is very... He's capable and adventurous, but he's not, like, annoying and helpless. Like, he reacts to things the way I would react to them if I was his age, you know? Like, well, I miss my family. But, it, you know... Well, he I'm has this that. great, well-observed kid behavior where he's completely fearless and completely terrified of everything, but in turns. Exactly. Like, when the Cossacks attack, he tries to chase them off by banging pots and pans together because he's so hyped up from the story of the giant mouse of mints. But then exactly. he's terrified of them. But then he's facing them down again, and that happens throughout the movie where he just has absolute bravery or absolute cowardice because, like, as as a kid of that age, you know, his moods are always completely up or completely down, and there's nothing in between. Yeah, and they also, like, they do remind you that they're mice, that they can do cool mice stuff, like run up and down things really fast or burrow underneath things really quickly and, you know, jump and crawl and zip around really fast, and that comes in handy this wonderfully dingy New York, there's gray water everywhere. That scene where he's in the sewer and all those, all those cockroaches are coming behind him. Oh, and yeah. then they fall into the sewer and like that, that sewer fish is eating them. Oh, I love it. And there's this horrible crunching noise oh, that yeah. bites on the cockroaches. Those aren't intelligent cockroaches who can do math. I'm assuming. Yeah, no, they didn't read the brothers Karamazov like Dom DeLuise did. <laughs> Any last thoughts yeah. on the film? Well, just the, like after the giant mouse of Minsk, Fievel is still separate from his family, despite the fact that they're always True. getting so close to each other, which is, I kind oh, of find, I find frustrating as a kid, but very charming as an adult. Yeah, endearing. But yeah, there's a whole then after the climax with the giant mouse of Minsk, which is where you think the movie would end, he's still separated from his family, and there's a whole thing, like, narrative cul-de-sac where he's, like, with these orphans, like, ah, your family didn't care about you, you shouldn't care about them, and that's mm-hmm. when Fievel has his lowest moment, and he, like, rejects his family, like, yeah, they if they really cared, they would have found me by now, but then his family, who thinks he's been dead the whole time, they meet uh, Bridget and Tony, and Tony's like, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, I know, got this friend, Philly Mouskowitz, because he's been calling him Philly as a nickname. And he's like, please tell my daughter that his name is Philly and not Fievel. Oh, no, it's Philly and Fievel. He came over here on a boat. And, like, they finally, they're reunited. And it's so touching when they're finally reunited. But I was shocked at how long the movie keeps going after the giant mouse. I know. it's it's I, I, I love it because it's like, if in the very like Don Bluthy fashion, when the family lands and the sister's like, maybe five will still around. The parents are like, no, he's he's dead. Get over it. Um, <laughs> and then later on, in when they're reunited, it does feel so much more earned because five will finally has that break of his naivete is gone. He's been beaten up enough, and he's just probably tired and over it. And he says, you know, you know, fuck it, I'm done. You know, I'm I'm gonna just you know live with these you know cynical orphan kids on Orphan Alley. I think it's called, right? Yes, yeah, literally called Orphans Alley. Literally called Orphan Alley. Yep. And then yeah, once you get that re, once they reunite, it's so earned, and you know it would be a little corny otherwise, but it's not. It feels it feels genuine, which I think is again this this really really taut structure of the film, and I think it works really well. Although speaking of animation flubs, when all the cats get run off the pier and like they're on the they're on the anchor being pulled up into the boat, Tiger is with them. But then suddenly he's on dry land helping the Mouskowitzes look for their son. And I love that bit where like all the principal mice are like, wow, I can't believe it. After all this, we're we're riding on a feline and we're all helping each other find our, our find this kid. And it's like. I, I find that so beautiful that again, anywhere else in the world, they would all be enemies, but I love that they've, they've come together like 
You know, Amer- America has its problems, but I love the way this movie represents the ideal of America. It, it, it literally brings a tear to my eye. Yeah, the microcosm factor, I think, is articulated, I think, more better than a lot of, I think, uh, Disney films from this time. Sure, and um, I just like the kind of realistic bent all the background stuff looks kind of scuffed up. It's uh, I like that kind of grittiness to it. And and as you mentioned, uh, Alex, the Mad Max sort of quality when they're putting the big mouse together at the end. Um, so yeah, I, I would recommend an American Tale. I think it holds up better than I expected. I seem to remember it having more musical numbers for some reason, but I... <laughs> Uh, it was very little when I saw this, and um, yeah, Thrasher. Uh no, I just I think you're talking about the musical numbers, and all I can think of is when when he's when when Warranty is playing the fiddle, and there's just like, hey, hey, it's not noise when the boss plays, it's culture. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great, a great line. Point. It's it's the the dialogue does not talk down to the audience, which I really appreciate. But yeah, and. I like that the movie does end on a high note where it's where it's the Mousekowitz family and Tiger with the pigeons being taken on a tour of the now completed Statue of Liberty, which is a fun little through line throughout the movie as we see the Statue of Liberty slowly constructed. It just it's just nice. You know, it's 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 just a great it's, it's just a nice fa- fanciful ending to the uh, uh, to this movie. I, and then, of course, over the credits, we get to hear Linda Ronstadt sing somewhere out there. And I do agree. That is a much better rendition of the song. Sequel, yes. Absolutely sequel, yes. <laughs> Alex? And I would say a definite sequel, yes. I hadn't seen this since I was a kid. I basically remembered that uh, Mouse Dean Fievel comes to America and there's a story in between. Um <laughs> But this time around, wow, I was really, really knocked out by it. I think the animation is just above and beyond terrific. Um, I, I, like you, Matt, I remember much more, many, many more uh, musical numbers. Actually, I was kind of relieved that there weren't as many because I think with that running time, it just it just fits really well. Um, a lot of fun watching it. I was uh, it had me on board for all of the great set pieces and stuff like that. And um, the voice acting, I think, was was really awesome. Um, so, yeah, big time sequel. Yes, I had a lot of fun revisiting this. Oh, and I got I, I do have to have to say um, just this. It's a fun bit of trivia that I'm just endlessly delighted by is that Fievel was Spielberg's grandfather's name, who was an huh. immigrant who came yep. to America around this time. I love like I love that there that there's something that real uh, in, in the movie. It's a lovely tribute. Certainly. Um, all right. Well, we can do move on to pitch a sequel. We haven't done this segment in a while. Uh, <laughs> let me think. Yeah, I think the shining I, salt. Yeah, the shining kind of made it hard to do. Um, I think I would, if I was doing a sequel to An American Tale, pretending like the other ones didn't exist, um, I would have it where uh, I, I guess maybe I would do a prequel that would end where the first one begins. So it would be about like the Cossacks coming in and maybe you have Cossack mice and cats and maybe some betray, uh, betrayal stuff going on. Also have uh, some more of like the, the Russian Jewish uh, culture. And, and I feel like what you're describing things. is just Fiddler on the Roof, but with animated mice. I mean, basically, yes. There you I go. think. And maybe, I mean, maybe that's what you would do. You would just literally take this, some of the songs and do kind of a cut down version. 
and it's called uh, Fievel on the Roof. <laughs> An American Tale 2, Fievel on the Roof. So what is Fievel's, like, grandfather's name, Fievel? Yes, his grandfather's name is, is Fievel. And um, you'd have some references, I think, to the American Tale. And maybe he, uh, you'd have a scene where his father picks up and, and learns about America being a magical place with no cats. And that's where the father kind of builds upon the lie to eventually convince his family to go. Well, it's not a lie. I do believe he honestly believes it. I don't know. I mean, you have people where so many stories of immigrants coming into the United States being told like, oh, the streets are made of gold and you'll never suffer and all these things. And sometimes they would come and have to, and it, or quite often, you know, they'd have to live in conditions that were in a lot of ways a lot worse than what they came from. And until they eventually um, got got settled and, and got in their way with uh, work and all that. But yeah, I would call American Tale 2, Fievel on the Roof. And the poster would just be uh, the fiddler on the roof with the human as the fiddler. And then below him, I think in between his legs would be like a mouse with a fiddle. <laughs> uh, Alex. All right, so now that the Mascos family's made it to America, they have to survive in America. Um, so all the members of the Mascots family, you know, get these, like, kind of, like, tough labor jobs at, like, textile mills and stuff like that, working these, like, you know, 14-hour days with no breaks and what have you. So um, uh, Bridget is uh, befriends um, another mouse from another Russian expat who had just uh, emigrated from the uh, from from Mother Russia. And, um, you know, he's got these red books and he's shouting about, you know, the uh, proletariat overcoming the bourgeois and, uh, you know, fair labor trades and stuff like that and encourages all the uh, the Mouskowitzes and the rest of the labor uh, mouse labor camp of the uh, factory to go on strike. Um, and that's when, uh, you know, Warranty Rat with uh, the uh, with Honest John, you know, they uh, hire some, you know, strike breakers to come and thump heads and. Um, uh, it's up to it's up to uh, uh, young Fievel to uh, befriend uh, Bridget and this uh, Marxist mouse <laughs> to uh, overthrow the um, the uh, you know labor overlords and establish a uh, you know a union for the uh, mouse labor board. So it'd be called uh, <laughs> an American tale continues the righteous uprising of Fievel Mouskovitz. SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the HyperX Podcast Network. HyperX is our sponsor and the maker of the acclaimed Quadcast and Quadcast S microphones. Quadcast USB mics look and sound amazing and they're packed with features. With four selectable polar patterns, you'll get great sound no matter what you're recording. The included shock mount and pop filter mean you won't have to shell out extra cash for a great setup. Then there's the eye-catching LED indicator and tap-to-mute sensor, so you can tap in and tap out to stop broadcast accidents. It's time for you to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast and Quadcast S. Uh, so my my I want I want it to be about another sort of important moment in American history. So mine, uh, and before I, before I go on, so it's, I mentioned like animation flubs. The animators consistently forget that the Mouskowitzes have a baby. Oh yeah, there's a baby here They're, and there. Yeah, the baby will just disappear, and sometimes the baby's not in a scene at all. But because of all the rest of the family's there, you got to wonder who's taking care of the baby. Did they sell it? But then other times the baby's with them, and sometimes in the scene it'll disappear. But anyway, 
and and I got really hyper fixated on that while watching it. So anyway, uh, my pitch is sequel. So it's going to be set in the 1920s. Uh, Fievel is an adult. He's married. He has kids of his own. And it's all about his kids kind of going through this experience of being first generation Americans. And because, you know, it's it's the 1920s prohibition gets passed and it all kind of has this uh, almost like godfather gangs of new york thing where like one of his kids gets pulled into this like bootlegging operation uh while his other kid like wants to be well, one of his other kids wants to you know nope we're, i'm gonna get a good job i'm gonna live better than my parents we're gonna keep moving up in the world and finally he has a third kid who's like i want i want to be an artist i want to write for the pulps i want to play the fiddle just like my grandpapa who is who is like you know finally dead and in fact i think that's how we'll Slightly open it dead. It will open it with a traditional Jewish funeral, and they're laying Papa Mouskowitz to death, uh, to, to laying him to rest. And so it's all going to be about this kind of like generational transition between the the the, the immigrant immigration and like the first generation of uh, of American uh, Mouskowitzes. Uh, and it's still going to be it's it's. I figure at this point, just because it's prohibition, we might as well move it to Chicago so the Chicago mob can be involved. We'll find out the Mouskowitzes did move further into America. Because I do like Fievel's whole thing. Well, I get to see the rest of America. One day you will, my little mouse friend. One day you will. Well, they got as far as Chicago. <laughs> and, and so we'll have mouse gangsters. We'll have like mouse, uh, mouse, like Irish police officers in paddy wagons. Uh, you know, we'll see what prohibition looks like when you're only like two inches tall. It's going to be <laughs> delightful. Uh, we're going to call, uh, we're going to call it, uh, American tale Two, uh, over a barrel. Over a barrel. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, that's the mouse speakeasy is like a mouse bar called the barrel. And it literally is a barrel that the mice walk into to get alcohol. Nice. Lots of drinking and smoking. That's the main reason I want yeah. to do it. Lots of drinking and smoking. But is that what it says on the uh, the tagline for the poster? Lots of drinking and smoking. Yep. <laughs> Roger, Roger Ebert. I wish I could smoke and drink what they're smoking and drinking. Right. These um, all feel like very Don Bluthy things. Like I, I picture like you know these like ferocious mouse strike breakers like clubbing like the poor little laborers, and then I can also picture you know like little like you know miniature Tommy guns and little like mouse cars you know driving by. Oh yeah, mouse Pinkertons, and just yes, for fun, exactly. just for fun, like like Fievel would also like Fievel would would have like a, a brother-in-law because he's married, and like his brother-in-law, oh he's a scientist, by which I mean he's a professional lab rat. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, and like, but yeah, and, and we all know that Don Bluth wants to do animal gangsters because they were all over all dogs go to heaven. Oh totally. Yeah, at the end with the guns and stuff. True. Well, very good. So on to what you're watching. I watched a movie I've been looking forward to for a while, and I just watched it at home because it is on HBO Max. Uh, at the same time, it's in a the theater. I'm talking about the new movie of Dune. Hmm. Um, I won't say Wait, too much. Because we'll... Dune. I've heard of this. Dune. Dune. Yes. Dune. <laughs> it's by the French op- author Franck Herbert. Franck Herbert. Wee yes. wee. Oui, oui. It's a, uh, it'll warm its way into your heart. No, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where I think like the first Lord of the Rings movie, it's, it's kind of marketed in a misleading way where it's just marketed as Dune. But then when you start the movie, it immediately says Dune part one. <laughs> and uh, I wish it could have gone into a theater just to hear people's reaction to that. Because I remember 
at the end of the the Stephen King It movie, and it says It Chapter One in the end credits. People started grumbling a bit, but I think to yeah. start it off, that would potentially piss off people more. But I think, but they didn't even get to Mordor, right? Right. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I'm kind of I felt kind of mixed on it. They have quite a long ways of the story to go. Thankfully, a sequel has been greenlit. But now it'll take longer for it to come out. I think that's supposed to come out in two years, which seems pretty fast for me for a movie with this kind of effects. But I guess they have a lot of the design work already done and people's schedules are probably more free than usual because of all the COVID uh, pandemic stuff going on, Delta variant, all that fun stuff. So um, I think, you know, good acting, uh, really weird uh, out there music from Hans Zimmer. And just felt like it was missing something that felt a bit stiff. Uh, either of you see it? I, I, I chances are I'm going to end up seeing it today. I have I have not seen it yet. Uh, but as like as a, as a lover of of old timey space opera, I am kind of shocked at how stark the designs I've seen have looked. I wish it was uh, going into it. I kind of wish it was a little bit more baroque uh, in its in its uh, visuals. It reminded me a bit of, of Kubrick a bit. I think with a lot of silences and. A lot of really well, meditative silences would probably work for Dune. Yeah, it is very. There are a few designs I think that are kind of almost. It's it's funny because there's like a minimalist thing, but it's not in that. It's minimalist, but not in that like vulgar modernist way. If that makes any sense. Hmm. Um, it, it, there's like a there's a much more like it's like I think Denis Villeneuve in almost a Christopher Nolan way knows what to do with negative space just as much as he does with. Space space. Um, and I do think there is a little sterility to it, but um, I think I like the film a little bit more than you did. I, I yeah. think Dune was really wild. Um, I maybe a part of that too is because I didn't read the books. I was like Grandpa Simpson at the end. I was like, isn't he supposed to ride a worm? It's <laughs> like, no, Alex, that's good. There's going to be another one. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't read the books. I I am wondering what my response is going to be because I I I love the ideas in the novel Dune, but I think it's a terribly written novel. Yeah, and and I'm wondering, like, I'm hoping it has the things I like and less of the things I don't like. Yeah, I mean, the directors talked about wanting to do, you know, three Dune movies with two of them being the first book and the second one being Dune Messiah, the second book, mm-hmm. which in a certain way completes Paul's arc, although not completely, but um, yeah. <laughs> So one of, one of the greatest narrative cheats in science fiction. <laughs> yeah, I do so think I, go Timothy on. Chalamet as as Paul is perfect casting, though he I think is because he he looks so tiny, but then he kind of becomes a badass, and I I totally buy it. Yep, and there's a lot of visions and stuff to stuff in the the later. Uh, what we'll see in the second one, I suppose. Yeah. So it'll be interesting if they keep it consistent to what's shown in the dream or make it slightly different. I don't really know, but yeah, it starts with the quote about dreams and visions and all these things. Cool. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? Uh, well, uh, it is, it is spooky season and I love diving deep into, uh, terrible horror movies. So I watched blood theater, the first film, uh, written, directed and produced by Rick Sloan, uh, who, uh, if you've, if you've, uh, he, he was the writer, director, producer behind one of the best episodes of mystery science theater, 3000 hobgoblins. That was one of their best episodes riffing on one of their worst movies. Um, 
and I gotta say, Blood Theater is no Hobgoblins. Uh, it's 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 ostensibly it's a horror comedy about a slasher who targets people at like a revival theater out in Hollywood. It is horribly written. It is horribly acted. The 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 jokes that are actually well written are horribly told and paced, and the horrible jokes are executed with flawless timing. It is it is amazing how consistently wrong the writing and direction is in this film. That in itself makes it worth watching. Um, but it's it's just it's just so needlessly goofy. And and it's it's one of the it's one of those things where like like when you listen to the dialogue, has this person ever heard humans communicating before? <laughs> Because it like everything about it seems like it was generated by by an AI that had been forced fed a number of slasher movies and a number of Mel Brooks comedies. Well, are the kills pretty bloody or no? I mean, because you mentioned not, it, it tries to be comedic, so sometimes not really. I mean, there, there's a bit there's a bit of blood, but it never it never goes into full on gore, which I honestly think would help. Um, the the I will say the best part of this movie. So Rick Sloan made a bunch of like short films and fake trailers when he was in film school and at the movie theater these are all the movies that they're watching are his like short films and when they're edited down to just be these quick vignettes the characters are watching they're actually pretty good such as the clown whores of hollywood the chainsaw chicks the amputee hookers Mm -hmm. nightmare of the lost whores those are actually quite funny, but I think it's in part because they're so trimmed down. You just get the funny parts. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, the movie would be better if it was just a framing device for showing fake trailers for those movies. <laughs> Where did you see it? Was it streaming or you had the disc? Uh, or... Yeah, it was It was uh, streaming. I think I saw it on Amazon, but like Rick Sloan's stuff is pretty accessible. I think most of his filmography is on Tubi. Uh, as well, I know the complete Vice Academy series, which I talked about several months ago on this show. That is uh, the complete six film series. It's on Tubi. Oh, nice. And uh, Alex, what have you been watching? Oh boy, I've been watching a lot of stuff. Um, this is most fresh on my mind, though. Um, I recently rewatched uh, a favorite film from a favorite filmmaker, and that is uh, Abel Ferreira's uh, technical debut, uh, The Driller Killer. From 1979, I gotta say, I love this movie so much so that I took it upon myself to cut and edit and assemble an, uh, a trailer for it because all the trailers on YouTube I thought sucked. So I did what the, the Alex thing, and that is make your own damn thing. Um, so I, I re-edited uh, my very own Driller Killer trailer because I want to do a commentary track for it, and I couldn't do it with anything that I saw on YouTube. But this movie is fucking out there, aside from the audacious title and conceit. Um, it's like this punk rock, grimy, verite, you know, uh, late 70s New York film. Um, and it's also very much like a slasher, but it's also like this, like, yeah, this, like, it's got this very punk rock thing going on for it. And also it's like, imagine if someone made, like, it's almost like a more grimy version of Texas Chainsaw. Um, but just with a drill and in New York. And uh, I think it's just, you see a lot of Abel Ferreira stuff that would run through his career laid down here. Um, like the weird Catholic shit, the New York stuff, um, the kind of confrontational aesthetic. And it also answers a question that I've always found uh, problematic with a lot of driller killer films is that it's a very impractical weapon, right? Because you have to keep it plugged in. Well, for a lot of them, anyway, back then. And this movie yeah. answers that question. I don't want to get into it. 
but see it for yourself. Um, you can watch it on YouTube for free, or just buy the Arrow Blu-ray, and it's worth every penny because it is a damn good Blu-ray with a lot of awesome features. Um, and yeah, big fan of Abel Ferreira. I, I, I love this movie so much. Well, and Driller Killer, that's just such a... It's, it is a title like Texas Chainsaw Massacre where it intrigues you. It's a bit gross, but you know what you're going to get. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it doesn't, it doesn't you know, skimp on the drilling killing. Definitely. All right. Well, next time on the show, we'll be talking about an American tale. Fievel goes west. Um, hopefully, we'll get to talk to the writer of the film, Flint Dill. I'm trying to get that lined up and have a brief chat with him uh, before we do the normal episode. And um, yeah, it's the second theatrical movie. After that, we'll be talking about the direct-to-video sequels, Treasure of Manhattan Island and Mystery of the Night Monster. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. And uh, of course, listen to the show at SequelCast2.com. And our theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. Uh, Check out his music at MarkWithAC.com. Pressure. All right, well, you can follow me on Twitter at WT2Art. Uh, also, as by the time this episode comes out, uh, my I will have a new release uh, that is just in time for the spooky season, which is when we're recording this. 100 Oddities for a Vampire's Lair. Uh, it's co-written by me. I did all the illustrations. Uh, and it's just a table of 100 strange creatures, objects, and occurrences that could happen in a vampire lair in your fantasy or horror campaign. Also, it has one of the funner bonus tables I've designed, which is a bonus table of coffin contents. If you ever just want to open a a coffin and have something unusual in there, you want to roll on the coffin contents table. I am very proud of this this book. I, I, I cannot wait for it to be in your hands or on your PDF reader, as it were. And we're 100 oddities. For a vampire's lair, you can find that on drivethroughrpg.com. Uh, just published by Skirmisher Publishing LLC. And Alex, uh, you can find me on Twitter at crabnebula1914, and you can drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. Um, recently uploaded a couple of trailer commentaries for uh, Craig Baldwin's uh, great documentary Sonic Outlaws and um, Tribulation '99: Alien Anomalies Under America. Um, and if you haven't already heard of it, which I just went on about at great length, I also did a trailer for the Driller Killer. Hmm. Very good. All right. So, uh, until, uh, next time, uh, this is a sequel cast two, uh, saying. Oh, actually, are we going to do the sequel scene or are we just going to. Oh, shit. Yes. I always forget this segment. (laughs) Thank you, Thresher. So, um, this is a scene where. Fievel is talking to uh, Warren T. Rat and Digit. Looks like uh, fairly early on in the film. Yeah, this is this is when uh, Warren T. tricks him into entering the sweatshop. Got it. And uh, who's going to play who? I would love to do Warren T. I just love that character so okay. much. Okay. Alex, who do you want to play? Let's see here. Let's see. Digit's got one line. Hmm. Okay, I'll be Fievel. Can I do Fievel? I'll do Fievel. Yep, I'll be Digit. Okay, go. All right. I'm I'm looking for my family. You've come to the right fella, kid. I know exactly where they are. Follow me. But Henri said I would find them here. Have it your way, kid. But remember what Shakespeare said, and I quote, Opportunity knocks, but uh but uh just once 
but 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 once taken at the tide twill lead to fortune if denied twill never return do you really know where my family is <laughs> trust me kid trust me which is like segue to a terrifying scene right there <laughs> that's not um, me so for sequel cast two this is uh matt this is thrasher this is alex saying you in the front higher higher you can spell tale two ways <laughs> never say never say never again just like that James Bond movie that was not Eon. But there are 